0: This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. A Denver landscaping company says it can't find enough workers who are American citizens, and so it relies on seasonal help from Mexico using visas that Congress has made harder to get. This company is CoCal Landscaping, and it was recently profiled in the Washington Post. Tracy Jan reported this story here in Colorado, joins us now from D.C. And hi, Tracy.
1: Hello, thanks for having me.
0: I hear your bustling newsroom in the background. Uh, Your story obviously reflects the the broader immigration debate. Uh, Opponents of more legal immigration or those who want to crack down on illegal immigration say that uh, those folks take American jobs. So I'm curious, how many imported workers are we talking about at CoCal Landscaping and what kind of work are they doing here?
1: Sure. This year, they actually only got 44 visas for H2B workers, these migrant workers that they get from Mexico. Normally, they get 160 workers, and the reason that so few were granted this year was because originally they got zero. It's a it's a first-come, first-served basis, and you're not guaranteed uh, these workers. So every year, company owners have to go through the whole process and you know their fate, their economic fate is basically up to the government. Huh. And what is the nature of the work? These guys are coming in to do landscape work. So they're fixing sprinkler systems. They're under, you know, they were. I was out there the, with them one day. Um, they're doing landscaping. They're trimming hedges. They're cutting the grass it's actually really rough work and it was really hot out there um the last week of august when we arrived from mexico
0: and they're doing this at businesses private homes what
1: cocal does commercial landscape so okay. we were at a reservoir uh, it was a municipal reservoir where we were where i was watching them edging the lawn um they are also doing it's called construction work but they're not building houses they're planting trees digging holes um, beautifying the landscape. And at, it's also at apartment complexes as well and condo complexes.
0: Of all of the companies to choose across the country, why this one? What was so compelling about CoCal's story, do you think?
1: It, frankly, it was Chewy Madrano and his openness. He invited me – actually, he, I met him in Washington when he was out here with the National Hisca- Hispanic Landscapers Association. This is the owner. And he was t- – He's the owner of the company, correct? Jesus Chewy Madrano, And he was telling me about how difficult it was for them to keep American workers and that this year he really had to try harder than ever to hire Americans because he didn't get any H2B visas. Um, he was recounting how he basically took anyone who walked in the door. He was so happy that they were willing to give his company a chance. He had raised a pay. And sometimes people quit after training just within three days. Sometimes people lasted for three weeks or just a few months, uh, and I could see why. The, the work is just, it doesn't sound hard because it's classified as unskilled labor, but it's physically very taxing. I talked to one uh, American young guy who graduated from community college, and he said every day he would come home on his bed and just collapse without eating dinner, and you know, his grandfather, who had been a landscaper, told him, this is a job for tough guys. And by the end of my time there, uh, he had quit. It was his last, he came to collect his paycheck. And he was a little embarrassed that he just couldn't cut it.
0: Hmm. Uh, You talk about the economic fate of companies resting on how many of these workers they can import. And uh, you also say that that this particular business, this landscaping business in Colorado lost $1.7 million in contracts because it was short-staffed, in the spring and early summer, when it couldn't get the temporary work visas that it wanted, so this this really does have an impact on COCAL's business. Um, That's uh, right. So, go ahead.
1: In July, President Trump's administration actually lifted the number, lifted the cap, the visa cap. So normally there's sixty six thousand for the whole year. They added an extra fifteen thousand over the summer, which is why. Chewy Madrana was able to get these 44 workers in there, and you know, fr- frankly, the president's companies have a stand to benefit as well. They import uh, migrant workers for some of his golf courses, as well as Mar a Lago, and um, yeah, it's it's companies who don't get them are at a competitive disadvantage because they can't do as much in the short of a time. They can't be as efficient. So it was natural for the CoCal's competitors in Colorado to pounce. Let's talk more
0: about American workers. Um, So you say that he had raised salaries in the past with the idea of attracting more domestic workers. Uh, We actually reached the owner of the company, Mr. Medrano, and asked why not, you know, raise them further to attract more American workers.
2: We have. I mean, we double the pay. I mean, uh, I pay what my industry supports. I'm a high, I mean, I'm I'm paying the same or better than my peers. My salaries went up uh, 40% in the past two years. American citizens, they got choices. They can work with me until they find something that they suit them better.
0: He also told you that not enough American workers view his landscaping jobs as careers. Um, I wonder, uh, from your vantage point, Tracy Jan of The Washington Post, uh, why you think that is? What, What it is about American workers that means they're so hard to either A, hire or B, retain, because retention is a real problem, too?
1: Right, Colorado is uh, in a particularly unique situation because the unemployment rate in the state is one of the nation's lowest, if not the lowest. And, you know, his job pays $14 an hour. The guy that quit that I met told me that he was going to go work at Home Depot and get $14 an hour driving forklifts. It wasn't a, as physically demanding of a job. Um, secondly, it's a seasonal job. And so it's not a year-round guaranteed pay. So very few Americans can survive on a seasonal job for $14 an hour. Um, that said, Chewy Madrano has a pipeline to get some workers into management. So he would be paying them through the winter. Paying them more, actually, maybe twenty dollars an hour or more shoveling snow, but he can't keep all of the workers from the summer into the winter because there's just not enough labor.
0: Yeah, this is really interesting because um, the the point I gather from your reporting is that if he's able to hire these. Seasonal workers from Mexico. That actually spells some opportunity for American workers who can rise into management positions, uh, managing those workers. A little bit of a dynamic I I wasn't aware of. I'll say that we asked the owner of this landscaping company in Colorado uh, if he'd consider hiring workers who are in the U.S. illegally. He said that he uses E-Verify to make sure that him his employees are here legally, in part because he doesn't want to get caught and risk making it even harder for him to get approved to bring in legal workers from Mexico. Uh, I, I want to focus, too, on the aspect of your story uh, dealing with the workers themselves, their backgrounds, where they come from. Uh, in a video on the Washington Post site, you show Yair Solis, who has worked for co landscaping here in Colorado for six summers in a row. Generally, I think my family's sad because I can't be with them. But the most important thing is that there's something to eat and an income. They get used to the idea that we have to wait to see each other. This is good for the family. He says in Mexico he just doesn't have the chance to save money. What did you see when you visited towns where Solis and the others are from?
1: Yeah, so we actually met up with all of the workers in Ciudad Juarez right over the border from El Paso. Some of these guys had traveled more than a day, more than 25 hours to get to Ciudad Juarez on their own dime for the chance of getting this visa. Now, the company had applied for these visas, but there was no guarantee until they were interviewed and fingerprinted at the U.S. consulate there. Um, A lot of these guys were cab drivers, they were cooks, they were farmers, and they survive on a paycheck-to-paycheck basis. They have school fees to pay, you know, just all the normal costs of feeding a family. Hmm. Oftentimes, they're the sole breadwinner of the family. Um, At one point, one of the men who has three daughters got a surprise letter in his luggage from his daughter. I believe she was nine. And she wrote this most eloquent one-page letter in Spanish about how she wished the family – that he wouldn't have to leave and that he could – so he wouldn't have to leave the family. She wanted um, – she wished there were not so much poverty in Mexico, not because she wanted to be rich, but so her dad wouldn't have to leave them.
0: But he could and, stay. And, you know, it
1: was very emotional. He he cried.
0: Uh, These workers are on a temporary visa called an H-2B, and as much as a lot of business owners rely on them to get seasonal workers, they have been controversial. Why, do you think?
1: People think that they take jobs away from Americans, and um, in some cases, they probably do. There were reports that Americans had interviewed for some of the jobs at Mar-a-Lago, and they were never – Followed up on. I mean, they were they had applied to a uh, Mar a Lago job via a fax number that was in the newspaper advertisement, and they were never called. So some people think that company owners don't try hard enough to recruit Americans. There's also a lot of abuse of these workers because they're kind of um, they are tied to the company. Some people view them as indentured servants. So it's Mm -hmm. really the the employers have a lot of discretion here, and some owners like Chewy Madrano treat them really nicely, almost like family. Others, not so much.
0: That is not universally true, you say.
1: I'm curious what other
0: industries rely on these H-2B visas heavily. I'm certainly aware of the ski area uh, use of these right. visas. What else?
1: So fisheries, landscaping is probably the number one um, dep- most dependent on these uh, visas. Oh. Fisheries, um, tourism, so hotels, resorts, obviously ski resorts. In the summertime, the vineyard, in Martha's Vineyard, in uh, off the coast of Massachusetts. I mean, this summer, a lot of there has been a lot of reports about how everything from restaurants to hotels were very, very short-staffed, and people had to chip in to do more work in order to get through the season. Some restaurants weren't even open until dinner time because they didn't have the staff to wash dishes and open during breakfast and lunch.
0: And the situation is that there were fewer of these visas in 2017 than in 2016 because Congress didn't allow Correct. returning seasonal workers to come back without counting against the cap uh, that had a limiting effect. What what is the future of the H2B visa program look like right now?
1: I think that the lobby as the business owners obviously would like the Congress to expand the number of visas available. Or at the very least, lift the returning workers cap. Um, however, the chances of, of that happening in this political climate are very is very unlikely. So we'll see what happens in December.
0: And why do you think it's unlikely? Just that fear of, of taking American jobs.
1: There's so much anti-immigrant sentiment out there. And granted, these are not immigrants. These are migrant workers who are returning to their countries at the end of this season. Some uh, company owners are saying it would even be helpful just to know that they could have these visas for more than one year so they could at least budget for it. Um, But it's very hard to get anything done in Washington these days. Mm.
0: And the December timeline, is that connected to the budget bill?
1: Correct. That's right. So they have another chance to renegotiate this for the next fiscal year. Thanks
0: so much for sharing your reporting with us, Tracy. appreciate it.
1: Appreciate your interest. Thank you.
0: Tracy Jan covers the intersection of race and the economy for The Washington Post. She joined us from the newsroom there, and she wrote about a Denver landscaping company, CoCal Landscaping, which has struggled to find workers who are U.S. citizens. When we come back, the Colorado scientists who are getting a better handle on Puerto Rico's landslides. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Landslides in Puerto Rico, triggered last month by Hurricane Maria, wiped out many of the island's mountain roads, and that's made it harder to distribute aid. Meanwhile, here in Colorado, a team of scientists is pinpointing where landslides did the most damage to help guide relief efforts. Jonathan Gott leads this team with the U.S. Geological Survey's landslides hazards program that's in Golden. I didn't even know that, Jonathan, that that was in Golden. Welcome to the program. Good morning. When you think of hurricanes, I think you often think of flattened buildings, storm surges perhaps, not necessarily landslides, but that's a real issue in Puerto Rico, huh?
3: Yeah, and so one of the big other factors with a hurricane is, excuse me, the heavy rainfall. And Hurricane Maria dumped maybe 30 inches plus in the mountains of Puerto Rico, and that triggered um, landslides across the island, and and a few communities have been really hit pretty hard. 30 inches of rain. That's stunning. You are trying to figure out where landslides have
0: buried roads or buildings in Puerto Rico. Uh, How do you go about
3: doing that from Colorado? (laughs) Yeah, and so what we're doing is using satellite imagery, so provided by, interestingly, a Colorado company, Digital Globe, and uh, aerial photographs to basically comb over the mountainous areas and map those landslides. And what we've done so far is really just try to get a, a broad sense. So we're not mapping each and every landslide. That would be impossible. There's tens of thousands probably. Tens so of we're thousands? Trying to, <laughs> yeah, tens of thousands. And uh, I mean, there's, some of them are small, but some of them are good size too. But really to try to get a sense of the communities that have been you know, most impacted and which transportation infrastructure has been most impacted, for instance. And is this a before
0: and after type thing? In other words, you have images before the slides and then after, and you compare those?
3: We do, but in the post-Hurricane Maria imagery, the landslides are really stark. They're very easy to identify. Um, Basically, the foliage and all the vegetation on the island, or a good part of the island, has been stripped off, so you can actually see the ground. And in a tropical place like Puerto Rico, that's really unusual. But the landslides just stick out. There are these small brown specks in the photographs. And the imagery we use is digital, and we use computers, and so we can zoom in and out like you would on Google Earth with those.
0: I see. It makes sense that uh, these powerful landslides would carry the trees and the greenery with them, and so they become very obvious to you as you look at them. And um, you say some are small. Some are larger. There are many, many of them. What are the main impacts, effects of these
3: landslides on people, would you say? Yeah, and just to clarify a point I made earlier, <clears throat> the reason we can see the ground from the, in Puerto Rico is because of the wind. So the hurricane, the winds were, you know, more than 100 miles an hour, and they stripped all the leaves off the trees. So you can actually see the ground. Huh. So we look at other photographs before the hurricane. I mean, you just see a sea of green, basically, the treetops. <clears> he <throat> also asked about the landslides. What are we looking for in terms of impacts? What have they done? Well, the pr- most dramatic impact is probably the just destruction of the transportation network. Most of the roads in the mountains of Puerto Rico are just narrow little mountain roads. And, you know, not that not that dissimilar from what we have here in Colorado. But they've either been destroyed or buried or You know, the culverts have been damaged and the roads are just impassable by a vehicle. Um, The other impacts we see is is homes or what we can see in the imagery is buildings that have been hit by landslides. And some have been partially buried and some have been pushed down the hill in in a few places.
0: I think that there's been a lot of attention on the death toll in Puerto Rico and whether it has been... um, in a way, n- not reported as fully as it could be, because there's so much work still to do in identifying uh, areas that are hard hit. Is it possible that these slides have buried homes, buried buildings,
3: and thus people? And it's just not clear yet that that's the case. It's possible, and and since we don't have since we don't have landslide expertise on the ground in Puerto Rico, it's hard to say exactly what the extent of the impacts in terms of loss of life are. But yeah. Um, We know that there were three fatalities attributed to landslides very early on in the storm in in a community that's called – in a municipality called Utuado. Um, These were the sisters that you may have heard in uh, media accounts. But beyond that, I don't know the extent of the loss of life. But yeah, it's possible. It's possible that that increases. You're listening to
0: Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner. and. You may not have known that the U.S. Landslides Hazards Program is in Golden, and Jonathan Gott and uh, his colleagues there have been looking at the uh, aftermath of Hurricane Maria in Puerto Rico, its effect on landslides. And do you just look at, at your hazards program at landslides after the fact, or do you ever try to predict
3: when they might be triggered? So most of the work that we do is is scientific investigation. So research to try to understand how landslides work and that those efforts are all targeted towards the development of tools and and methods to to predict both the timing and location of landslides and like any natural process the prediction problem is challenging. But we work with the National Weather Service in particular to To provide some guidance, uh, I call alerting more than prediction, um, for debris flows, which are these fast-moving landslides um, that are common in mountainous areas here here in Colorado. Um, Remember from 2013, the flood, a lot of the impacts to the mountain communities was these debris flows, the mudslides, if you will. Could this work
0: uh, inform evacuations eventually?
3: Or or maybe it already has. (laughs) So the... Project is, or the work is really most focused on areas that have been recently burned by wildfire. And a lot of that work has been pioneered in Southern California. And in Southern California, from, from these burned areas and mountainous areas, um, the Weather Service does inform. Community, you know emergency management, local emergency management, and then they can use that information to manage evacuations than they have in the past. yeah the,
0: the idea there is that when a fire burns, as has been the case as we know across the west, <laughs> uh, that makes the soil somewhat impenetrable and
3: uh, and landslides I suppose uh, more probable yeah, that's exactly right. so the fire not only removes the vegetation but it can change the physical properties of the of the soils. And rain that falls on those burned soils doesn't infiltrate; it doesn't penetrate, as you said. It 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 runs off, and so mudslides, debris flows, whatever you want to call them, and flash flooding become much more common, much more, uh, in some ways, frequent. Uh, You can say a garden variety rainstorm that wouldn't normally cause problems. That you know, if it hadn't been burned, that falls on a burned area can really create a mess.
0: So this is not just an issue after hurricanes, but after wildfire as well. Thanks so much, Jonathan, for being with us. Yeah, thanks for having me. That is Jonathan God. He's with the U.S. Landslides Hazards Program in Golden, talking about the aftermath of Hurricane Maria and potentially of those Western wildfires this season. Still to come, a government watchdog group will close its doors at the end of the year. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Here with Colorado Matters from CPR News, I'm Ryan Warner. Very few Americans say they can trust the government to do what's right. The Pew Research Center puts it at about 20 percent. A nonprofit called Colorado Ethics Watch has served as a watchdog for the last 11 years in the state. But because its funding has shrunk, it will close at the end of the year. Executive Director Luis Toro is here to share some of the group's accomplishments and ways everyday citizens can help keep the system clean. Welcome to the program.
4: Thank you for having me.
0: So when Ethics Watch goes, who will mind the store?
4: Uh, Well, there's a bunch of uh, different groups and individuals we hope will get involved. We did a spectrum of work, including policy work on bills at the Capitol that we hope groups like Colorado Common Cause and the Colorado Freedom of Information Coalition will continue to carry the ball on. These and, are sunshine, sunlight organizations uh, that are focused on open government. Exactly. To a large no. Now, the area of, uh, that we really uniquely worked in was in actually enforcing uh, Colorado ethics and campaign finance laws. And so that... We'll really have to look to members of the public to continue to uh, work with the State Ethics Commission and and through our private enforcement system for uh, money and politics violations to bring those cases themselves and uh, either with uh, pro bono lawyers or with uh, other groups filing those cases or or, uh, what have you. Who's got time for that? I I, I just say when you talk about everyday citizens being a part of this process— uh, is that a, sort of a reasonable constituency to rely on? That's a really good question. And I think a lot of people don't have time, but I've been surprised over the 11 years, well, actually, I haven't been there for the whole 11 years, but over the years, I've been surprised at how many people do take the time, especially as you get more local, the, the, the closer the level of government is to the people, the more time people invest in uh, p- paying attention to what they do has been my experience. So you see a lot of people... Uh, paying close attention to their city government and then maybe less to the state government and maybe even less to the federal government. So you think that this might have a
0: greater impact at the local level and what would you encourage people to look for? Where are the vulnerabilities particularly well, in in local Colorado government?
4: Sure, well the, the, I think that I mean there's a we've really worked in two major areas, ethics and campaign finance and they're, they're obviously related but campaign finance refers specifically to Election money and ethics is the ethical behavior of a public official in office. And I, the generally speaking, if if something seems like a conflict of interest to you, it it uh, it's worth looking into. Uh, it may turn out that our conflict of interest laws are weaker than you think. That that often happens. Uh, for example, with the state legislature it's it's not considered a conflict of interest if you work in a certain industry and, and that industry is going to benefit from a bill you vote on and therefore you're going to benefit as a member of in that industry. That's not illegal in Colorado. No, because that's the concept of a citizen legislature, that we want to have attorneys voting on things that affect attorneys or landlords to vote on things that affect landlords and to bring their wisdom that this is the theory. And uh, we can definitely have a discussion about whether... That's really true now that being a Colorado legislator has become a full-time job. But but the the actual conflict law is that they can't vote on something that specifically benefits their business.
0: Give me an example of something that actually is illegal and that perhaps uh, was something of a
4: common occurrence over these 11
0: years for Ethics Watch.
4: I would look for, uh, like I said, conflicted votes is a a very common one. Uh, For example, we did an ethics complaint a few years ago out of Jefferson County where one of the county commissioners was voting on a grant to a nonprofit organization. At the same time, he had applied to become the executive director of that nonprofit organization, a job that he actually ended up getting. Uh, We filed an ethics complaint, and the ethics commission found that it was a conflicted vote, although they didn't impose any penalty because they they believed that he wouldn't he would have been hired anyway that it that he wasn't hired as a reward for uh, raising the the uh, grant outlay to this nonprofit, but it was still a, a conflicted vote. So that's the kind of thing that that we'd be looking for. So just to be crystal clear here, that conflicted vote would have been okay at the state legislature, but it's not at the local level. I would argue that that would be a violation at the at the state legislature level too. Okay. But the the, the state legislature level it's more like um so and so representative owns rental properties and he's voting on uh the the duty of habitability the warranty of habitability and and arguing, you know, voting against having an implied warranty of habitability, that that's a conflict of interest. And in a sense, it is. But because it's not specifically targeted to the business he owns, it's not considered a conflict of interest. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're speaking with Luis Toro. He's executive
0: director of Colorado Ethics Watch, which will shutter at the end of the year. And I gather that that's partly because you don't have the funding to go forward.
4: Does that mean people don't care about this stuff? Well, it kind of does mean that. I mean, people care I and mean, you mentioned before the the polls that show that uh, ethics and government is always one of the highest issues that, that people say matters to them when they vote, but when you're in, in the nonprofit, well, I'll world, just say that the statistic I cited is
0: that people don't trust government, not necessarily that they are, you know, in it to change it.
4: I'm uh, I'm sorry. That's, that's I, an important distinction, yes, I suppose. Thank you it is and I've se- I've seen polling that suggests that People put ethics fairly high on their list of, of voting priorities. but the
0: Why wouldn't that be reflected then in the money that comes to Ethics Watch?
4: I think there's two major reasons, and one of them is that because we're lawyers, people expect uh, – people don't want to fund law practice. They believe that, that law firm partners should be doing this work pro bono and, and that the, the pro bono – uh structure of the law is is something is supposed to take care of this stuff and the other part of it is simply we're not as compelling of a story as you know relief for hurricane victims or or things like that where there's an immediate need and and really concrete examples of of uh how you're going to do good on the ground as opposed to a more abstract encouraging Clean government kind of approach you talked about the slack you want people to pick
0: up, and uh, we referenced in particular conflicts of interest. It seems to me that campaign finance, which is the other big focus uh, has been for these eleven years, uh, is is a little thornier, maybe a little harder to parse out for the average citizen
4: in, in some ways it is I think that, that in some ways it 's very fundamentally very simple what campaign finance law asks. People to do is to keep, who are running for office is to keep track of the money that they're getting, which they're supposed to do anyway, and then disclose it. So it shouldn't be hard to comply with those laws. Where it gets complicated is that over the years there's been a movement of people who have claimed that the, the First Amendment protects spending money as if it is speech itself. So that limiting spending is limiting speech. Some people call this the money is speech doctrine. I prefer to think of it as spending is speech. The, 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 the that has resulted in the chipping away and, the, and making a fairly complicated structure of, of you know, what, what was a simple constitutional amendment passed in, in 2002 has now has holes in it and patches to the holes. And so that does get kind of complicated, but it's it's something that can be learned.
0: And this is uh, the state constitutional amendment. That's correct. Having to do with campaign finance. You mentioned earlier the Ethics Commission in Colorado. Uh, is that not a, a
4: body that is on the hunt for cases? It's merely one that receives cases then? Well, that was another body that was created through a constitutional amendment to the state constitution, Amendment 41, and and that didn't uh, speak so much to how the Ethics Commission would process cases, but it did say in there that... uh, Complaints will be filed by members of the public, so it it does it, uh, it, it has been the onus read. on the citizen it, it, it has been read that way, and I think reasonably to say that they can 't act without a complaint being filed
0: does Colorado need something else?
4: I would prefer a system where we, we were like a state like Montana, which has a commissioner of fair political practices or Other states where the ethics commissions have more uh, enforcement authority to look for violations affirmatively and investigate them themselves. Would that have to be a constitutional change or could that be a legislative change? I think that some of the – some could be done through the existing framework as actually a regulatory change by the Uh secretary of state. Some could definitely be done by statute. But of course the best solution to problems with the constitutional amendment is another constitutional amendment to – address those problems and the holes that have emerged in the state constitutional amendment since 2002. Which could be
0: referred from the legislature or it could be uh, signature gathering um, among the populace. Um, there have been claims that Ethics Watch was targeting Republicans in making its
4: complaints and overlooking possible violations by Democrats. What do you say to that? I'd say that there's no evidence of that and the, it's, it's simply not true. But I would also say, though, that There's a difference between the ethics and the campaign finance worlds on this. If you look at ethics, we filed complaints against 20 county treasurers, and eight of them were Democrats and 12 of them were Republicans. And I suppose you might point a finger at us and say, see, there were more Democrats than – or there were more Republicans than Democrats on that. But really the wrongdoing was the same, and and the Democrats were from bigger counties and so forth. But with the – on the campaign finance side, it's true that there's an ideological movement that – supports this concept of spending a speech. And if you believe that, you're going to push the limits more. And there was definitely a phase in Colorado that we were part of where groups were trying to weaken our laws and skirt our laws and and basically sit back and wait to be sued. And and we filled that role of of suing them. And those were groups that were trying to uh, weaken that, that had an agenda against campaign finance, disclosure laws and limits. And obviously felt emboldened by a case like Citizens United, I'm guessing. That's right. And, uh, uh, you know, it's it's interesting in the years after Citizens United that the, the, it upheld disclosure and and yet uh, there is still a strong movement against disclosure in, in money and politics.
0: Luis, thanks for looking back and ahead with us. Thank you. Luis Toro is executive director of Colorado Ethics Watch. The nonprofit was founded in 2006 and it will close up at the end of this year. When we come back, how to bring skiers back to Howelson Hill in Steamboat Springs. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Lift tickets can lead to sticker shock and their prices often go up each ski season, but at Howelsen Hill, a small historic ski area in Steamboat Springs, the cost may drop a lot, think pocket change. Steamboat City Council President Walter McGill is on the phone with me. Hi Walter. Good morning, Ryan. You want to drop the cost of skiing from $25 to $1 for some skiers, which may strike people as strange because Howelson is currently losing money. And yet this is a really storied spot. It has the most complete natural ski jumping complex in North America. It's been the training ground for 88 Olympic skiers, and it has sent more skiers to international competitions than any ski area in North America. How can it be losing money and skiers?
2: That's a good question, Ryan. Well, we lose money because it also operates just revenue. Well, let's take it slow here. It loses money due to the fact that we don't have enough people buying tickets down there. It's a training ground as well for the Steamboat Springs Winter Sports Club that was last year voted the best ski club in the country. And so the ski club does utilize both the Nordic Trails and the Alpine Trails within their training operationally, the city has to operate the lifts. They have to maintain the infrastructure. They have to groom the hill. And so this year, we're tasked with replacing a snowmaking line, and that's going to be $750,000. Ouch! So just our hours, but we don't have enough people using the hill.
0: You don't have enough people using the hill? Why, Why not, do you think?
2: You know, it's a couple of questions. I think that People don't think of and Hill as a destination ski area, which comparably in size, about 500 acres, it only has 13 runs, some of those are strung together, and has, but it does have about 20K of Nordic trails, groomed Nordic trails down there, and I think part of the reason is because people don't view it as a destination resort, so they don't compare it to coming up to Steamboat Ski Area, or they the Silverthorne area, with the I seventy corridor and the ski areas in that area. However, it's a great training mount. It's a great uh, learning facility for skiing. And so- we don't have a lot of lifts. As well, we have one chairlift and one poma lift on the mountain. So, I think overall, people don't view it as a skier in comparison to other skiers in Colorado.
0: Okay, so that may be why it's not drawing people from afar. How do how do locals use it much?
2: Well, locally they don't use it much, and that's kind of where I came up with the idea for the dollar tickets, was to get people to understand it is a public park down there. We think of the whole Halison complex as four seasons of fun down here, and we think we have one of the best parks in the country. We have extensive mountain bike trails and running trails, certainly. There's hiking facilities, and the trails are a huge network back here that flies to the other side, so you can do one 26-mile loop that we have for a running race, a marathon, there and we have biking. But in the skiing, people think it's just for Winter Sports Club. But no, it's a public facility.
0: And perhaps uh, they see the the $25 to ski for, you know, an hour or so too steep. So you are proposing this dollar lift ticket I think just for locals. Is that right?
2: Well, it is for Route County and Moffat County residents. Uh There's people there. Steamboat Springs is six square miles and you can get on the other side and there's a neighborhood called Steamboat 2 and Silver Spur. And although those people are in Route County, they all consider themselves Steamboat Springs residents. And even our neighbors in Hayden and Oak Creek, those people would be welcome to the mountain as well. I mean, everybody's welcome, but we like to give a discount. And so we reached out to Moffat County because there's a lot of people that work in Steamboat Springs that live in Moffat County, the Craig area.
0: So is dropping tickets for those folks to a dollar just a gimmick? <laughs> like, you, you know, here you are getting to talk about Howelson Hill on Colorado mm-hmm. Matters, or, or do you think that it's... A viable plan that the council will approve and that will perhaps change people's perception of this place?
2: I think certainly we have an ability to approve it this year. And is it a one-off? Because the question is asked, that's a good question. How do you get back to try to generate revenue here? Is it a $5 ticket? Is it something like that? But is it certainly it's not $20 target, because people won't use it. There's downtown employees that want to come over and ski. Maybe they can't get up to the mountain, but it's a nice powder day and there's some fresh snow, but they don't want to go over and pay $20 for an hour. And they also don't think that they did that. The season pass is $300, but they also feel that, you know, I might not do this 15 times to make this equal. And so I think trying to get those people back to the basis of skiing and we are ski town USA. And I think we have to embrace that again as a community. And so it might be just an expense the city has to pick up to allow these people for the future to ski the park for $1 or $2 tickets. It used to be that way back in the 80s, and it was certainly the economy was different. But inflationary prices have changed things, too. But at $25, there's not people taking their kids over there for a little morning ski on a Saturday, and there's not retirees or people with night workers coming down and just Nordic skiing for a couple hours. And I think since the whole community pays to operate this ski area, it's about 3% of our annual budget. Oh, wow. And the, the community ought to embrace and be a welcome at the Hill.
0: I want to say that a two-cent cigarette tax was successfully used to help fund Howellson Hill in the 1940s. Have you looked at other options? Like, is, is I don't know, a bond issue on the table?
2: Well, there is a bond issue because we need to replace the chairlift this summer. And a chairlift is estimated about $3 million. Now, I don't think the community is ready right now to just put one point. They talk, we talked about on council to make the city pay for half that $1.5 million. But I don't think the community is ready to embrace that chairlift if they're not going to use the hill. They'll see it as just more money going to the Winter Sports Club for the kids that are trained down there. Because there's also other assets and there's opportunity costs that we could be building a turf field because of our climate or our fields get wet early and stay wet longer. And we could have turf fields, we could build, finish some other parks that we've considered with master plans.
0: Do you think that that Howelson Hill is in jeopardy?
2: No, I don't think Howelson Hill is in jeopardy. I think that we'll continue to have the training down there for the Winter Sports Club. We do have a Continental Cup coming up in December, and this is just a World Cup that we voted to host the other day after Park City turned it down. I think we are, Ski town USA is part of our heritage, but again, you have to get people to re-embrace the hill and, and rediscover it, and people know it a lot in the summertime for the mountain biking, that's world-class down there and the hiking, but in the winter they kind of close up and they feel run off because of the Winter Sports Club, or they feel run off with a $25 ticket, so they don't come down and just free ski, but we should treat it. You know much more, so, although the city has to groom it, and it 's in excellent condition we groom it every day for the alpine, and the Nordics groomed about every other day, but to come down and just embrace it as part of the aspect of living in steamboat springs
0: and i 'll say that the council will be making a decision on this one dollar idea next week that 's Walter McGill, President of the Steamboat Springs City Council he has indeed proposed lowering daily lift tickets for the city-owned Howelson Hill Ski Area. To be very clear, this is uh, not connected to Steamboat Springs, the resort. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Twelve animal heads are on display in Denver's Civic Center Park. They're big, they're bronze, and they're by China's most famous and most controversial contemporary artist. CPR arts reporter Corey Jones has the story.
5: Ai Weiwei's art is commentary, both social and political. He has clashed with the Chinese government, been beaten by police, and was once detained for nearly three months. This all goes back to 2008. Ai helped design the Bird's Nest Stadium for the Beijing Olympics. He later denounced the Games as government propaganda. That same year, disaster struck central China. This is what happens when the earth quakes. That's footage from a 2012 documentary about Ai Weiwei. It shows the earthquake's aftermath and how the artist worked to shed light on it, particularly at schools that easily toppled. It's devastating. You know, I, I'm speechless. That's I. He investigated the student death count after officials would not release details. His team gathered the names of more than 5,000 victims and posted them online. He also made installations using steel bars from the destroyed schools to highlight their poor construction. In the film, I says he fears retaliation, but he still pushes for human rights. I act more brave because I know the danger is really there. If you don't act, the dangers become stronger. Ai is also known for blogs, videos, and selfies that he posts online. The artist now lives in Berlin and continues to speak out. Because of his activism, authorities censor his name on the Internet in China. Last year, I told CNN his art is intended for a broad audience. I'm artist, not designed for museums. I'm designed for the people. I like
2: the dog. You like the dog?
5: This exhibition in Denver like is called Circle of Animals, Zodiac Heads. Each bronze head rests atop a tall stem. The crew uses a crane to lift them into place one by one. The sculptures are on average about 1,800 pounds each. That's Roger Machin. He leads the installation, which lasts more than six hours. Machin set up the same exhibition in Louisville, Kentucky. The fine art rigger says it's pretty straightforward. They just need to make sure the heads go in the right order.
2: They're arranged in the same sequence as the Chinese Zodiac calendar.
5: Tariana Navas-Nieves helped bring the art to Colorado. She directs cultural affairs for Denver Arts and Venues. That's the city's cultural agency that runs venues like Red Rocks Amphitheater.
2: With
1: so much happening in the world, to have an artist such as Ai Weiwei with such a strong voice for those that often are not heard, it's inspiring.
5: Denver paid more than $100,000 to bring this art to town. That money comes from things like sea taxes and concession sales at city-owned venues. Navas Nieve says this show took more than a year to plan.
1: I had to write a letter of request. Those letters apparently are then shared with Ai Weiwei, and then he makes the final decision.
5: Different Zodiac heads have toured to more than 40 places. A New York City group called AW Asia manages the exhibitions. Director Taliesin Thomas says these heads are based on actual artifacts from Beijing that European troops looted in 1860 and sold off around the world.
2: There were many attempts by outside forces and forces within China to destroy incredible works of art. So these Zodiac heads are a contentious issue along those lines.
5: The auctions of these heads have outraged China, which has demanded their return. The country has retrieved seven of the pieces, paying millions of dollars. But Ai Weiwei has questioned their symbolism and value for a regime that condemns culture and free speech. So the artist reproduced the heads and has put them in front of many people.
2: Even if you don't have any knowledge of that backstory and that complicated historical perspective, the 12 zodiac animals themselves are delightful on their own terms.
5: For Vong Sandoval, it's not about the political message. It's about seeing Asian culture represented on this scale. During the Vietnam War, she and her family fled to the United States. Now, Vung Sandoval serves on Denver's Asian American Pacific Islander Commission, which will help with outreach for this exhibition.
1: We're not the most visible community, and to see someone who looks like us, who has similar backgrounds and upbringings, it brings us tremendous cultural pride to see that.
5: The exhibition will be up until mid-October of next year. I'm Corey Jones, CPR News.
0: You can see a video of the installation of Ai Weiwei's Zodiac Heads at cprnews.org. Finally, Saturday is World Singing Day. This international effort began in Boulder, and its mission is nothing short of world peace. To quote, sing together, unite the world. There will be organized events from Antarctica to Australia. People are also encouraged to sing in smaller groups. Could be right in their own home with friends and family. A lot of different songs are sung, popular tunes people know, but there's a coordinated song shared the world over. This year, it's I Will Sing You to Me by songwriter and producer Scott Johnson of Boulder. He started World Singing Day, and this is his tune. We
2: used to be best of friends singing songs from where that went, but we lost touch and forgot the songs in us.
0: I Will Sing You to Me, vocals there by Eric LaChapelle. The idea, of course, is to add your own voice. World Singing Day is Saturday with local events in Loveland and where the whole thing started in Boulder. I'm Ryan Warner, CPR News.